0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 22. We have here in 2 Kings 22 the account of the beginning of the reign of a new king in Israel. His name was Josiah. Verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, Josiah was a good guy. Josiah was an interesting man and a very zealous man for God. Look at verse 2. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right or to the the left. He was, as I said, very zealous for God and brought many key and good reforms to Israel. If you want to see a little bit of it, turn over to chapter 23. Just read a verse here in 2 Kings 23. Look down to verse 24. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritualists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Helkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. He was extremely zealous for the kingdom of God with all of his heart. Now, why do you suppose that was? Well, one reason is because of what happened shortly after he became king, if you look back in chapter 22. Chapter 22, look down to verse 8. Then Hilkiah the priest and Sapan the scribe said that I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Sapan, who read it. And Sapan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied the money that was found in the house and have delivered it to the hand of the workmen, who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shapen the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shapen read that book in the presence of the king, and it came about that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Why did he do that? You know what it meant for him to tear his clothes. It was a very important thing for the king to rip apart his robe. It meant something drastic. Something uh, powerful had happened. Something important. So he tore his clothes. And that was an important thing. And here's why. He sent his men saying, Go and inquire. Verse 13. Go and inquire for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. To do according to to all that has been written concerning us. They hadn't been keeping the law. They hadn't been keeping the word. And so God's wrath was against them. Look down to verse 17. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger and with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath burns against this place and shall not be quenched. No wonder Josiah was jealous for the law of God and zealous to keep the word of God. No wonder he was so careful to do what God said because he realized and learned that the wrath of God was against them for all their sin and iniquity. You know what I always find shocking about this passage? They didn't even know. They didn't even have the book of the law. And they didn't even know about God's wrath. And how God's wrath was against them for not keeping his word. And do you know what else I find shocking, even more shocking? That we live in a day that people go to church and they don't know about the wrath of God. That we live in a day, not that men don't have Bibles, they have them on their laps, but that they are not taught or preached or told that the wrath of God may burn against them for their sin and therefore they need to repent. Or that the wrath of God burns against a nation like ours who has turned its back upon God and the things of God and the ways of God and has turned to idols such as money and power and fame instead of the things of God. And this nation needs to learn and needs to know that the wrath of God stands ready to be poured out if they do not repent. You know, the only thing that keeps the wrath of God from being poured out upon men today is God Himself and His patience and His mercy. This is why we have been studying in the past few weeks the subject of the wrath of God and what we've entitled the beauty of wrath. We have seen from our scriptures the very reality of wrath taught throughout the Bible as we saw the chronicle of the concept, indeed, as it is given here throughout the Old Testament. And we've talked about the common conviction of many in churches today who almost by accident preach about the wrath of God because a lot of people say, you need to be saved. They don't even say saved from what? What is salvation? Salvation is being saved from the wrath of God. And so they may choose not to teach about the wrath of God, but they mention it when they say you need to be saved. But unfortunately, many churches in our day look at the wrath of God as something forbidden to be even spoken of. And that sin shouldn't be mentioned because you don't want to offend anybody. And yet this is what the Bible teaches And we went from there to consider the Christian concept. And we saw indeed that our precious Lord Jesus, the loving Lord Jesus, spoke often of the fires of hell and the damnation that awaits those who do not repent, and that the Apostle Paul and we just looked at one passage in Romans 1. says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Wrath is a part of the New Testament Christian belief. And it is taught clearly in the Scriptures. We went from looking at the reality of wrath to our next major heading, the reason for wrath. And we've only begun in this section, and we're looking currently at the first area, and I hope to finish it today. And that is, God's wrath manifests His glory. God is glorified by His wrath. God is exalted by His wrath. And we looked first at the Old Testament and saw that His glory is seen in the deliverance of His people. And we looked kind of backwards in history chronologically with the nation of Israel, looking first at what took place through Hezekiah, written about in the book of Isaiah, where you remember that Hezekiah was there and the Assyrians were at the wall and God destroyed the Assyrian army and brought great victory to the people of Israel and great glory to himself for defeating this superior army. And we look next at the desolation brought by Gideon, found in Judges chapter 6, where with just 300 men he brought a great victory for the people of Israel and great glory to his name we also saw the defeat of goliath and the philistines by the hand of david and again great victory for his people and great glory to god's name we then considered the demolition of jericho as the walls fell and great victory for god's people and great glory to his name last lord's day we considered the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And I just remind you a little of what we saw in that passage, that God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that Pharaoh's not going to let my people go. Pharaoh will not let my people go without a great deliverance, without a great display of my power. And that's exactly what God did. He told him also that his heart was hardened and that he would not free Israel, but that he would make him to do so by his power and by his might and by his wrath. And this is what God did. A great victory for God's people and great glory for God himself as His name went forth as powerful throughout all the land as the God who is God and able to deliver His people from the bondage which they were in. To all the nations around, they knew that Israel's God was the true God. In all these, God displayed His wrath upon the wicked and His people were delivered rescued from destruction or set free to serve God. And none of the people felt sorry for Pharaoh. And none of the people lamented over that wicked, pagan, heathen Goliath. And none of the people felt bad that any of the wicked were destroyed. Rather, they exalted and glorified the God whose mighty arm and great power delivered them. And this is what we do to this day. When we read those passages, we rejoice in the power and in the might of God who was great, even displaying His wrath, to deliver His people and to set them free with miracles and might because we worship the God who is God. Now please, take your Bibles, and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to turn now, under the major heading, the reason for wrath, and God's wrath manifested in His glory, from seeing His glory in the deliverance of His people, Israel, to the glory of God revealed in the salvation of His people. Church, And this is what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in Romans chapter 9. In this text, he's actually addressing the very aspect of God's wrath that we have been looking at in the Old Testament, and he's relating it to us. He's relating it to the Christians at Rome, which is in turn relating it to you and to me. And this is what we find Him doing in this passage. Now this is why I chose to look at those passages in the Old Testament first. I wanted them to be in our hearts and to think about and to see what great deliverance God had for His people and the way He did it. I want you to have that in your heart and have that in your mind. And now let's translate that into what we have in the New Testament era and what has happened with us. That's what Paul's doing. That's what I want to do. As Paul reminds those in Rome about what did take place, he now shows them what has taken place most recently through Christ Jesus. Now let me just say this on the right away. This is a complicated and an involved passage. It could take me weeks and weeks of messages to deal with this text. I am going to fly low. I can only address that which is pertinent to our current study. But I cannot pass over all of it. So I'm going to try my best to summarize some of what Paul is saying here and to see from what he says how God is glorified even in His wrath and even as it relates to us. So look with me, please, to verses 14 through 18 as we see Him here speak of God's sovereignty. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. A powerful, powerful passage in the scriptures. And as I said, I can only begin to touch on it. But clearly stated here, in two of these verses, is the sovereignty of God. As he says, He has mercy on whom He desires. And He hardens whom He desires. God has mercy on whom He desires. Has mercy. God had mercy on Israel. He did not show mercy to the Assyrians. He did not show mercy to the Midianites. He did not show mercy to Jericho. He did not show mercy to the Philistines. But he showed mercy to Israel. Why? Because God sovereignly chose to show mercy to Israel and not to show mercy to those pagan nations. They were His chosen people. Right from the very beginning of the Scriptures, as we read in the beginning chapters of Genesis, God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees it is not Abraham called God. It is God called Abraham. God initiated it. God called. God chose Abraham to be the father of his nation. And indeed, that is what we have in the scriptures. From Abraham throughout the Old Testament, it is God who cared for his people. It is God who showed mercy on his people. It is God who delivered his people. That's what we've seen. And why? Because he chose his people. I read to you from Deuteronomy. You need not turn there. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. And Psalm 135 tells us the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel for his own possession. God had mercy on them because he chose them. He chose to have mercy on them. They were his chosen people. Why do you think he delivered them all the time? They were his people. He gave them his law. He gave them his ways. He cared for them. He nurtured them, provided for them. And that's why he delivered them, protected them, helped them, brought destruction against their enemies because they were his people. Who are you? If you are here today as one who is saved by the grace of God, you are God's people. You are the people of God today. Those who love His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Scripture is replete with references over and over that He chose you in Him from before the foundation of the world. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is the God who chose to have mercy on you. If he did not, you would still be dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Look at the text now as we looked here at the sovereignty of God. But we must connect it in this passage to the mercy of God. As he says, he has mercy on who he has mercy he says it in two of the passages, two of the texts, verse 15, as well as verse 18. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Not only is God sovereign, but God is merciful. How wonderful that God is merciful. Because if you are here today as one who loves Jesus, it is not because of your will. Look what he says in the text. So it does not depend on the man who wills, verse 16, or the man who turns, but on God who has mercy. When will people today, even in churches, begin to realize that there is no good in them? That we are all worthless sinners. And it's not good people who go to heaven and bad people who go to hell because there are no good people. We are all unworthy. We are all dead in our trespasses and in our sins. So we cannot will ourselves to be saved by God. He must have mercy. We cannot work our way to God and make ourselves worthy and good enough to be saved. He must have mercy. It is by God's mercy that we are saved. There is not an ounce of goodness or worthiness in me that God would ever save me. It is only because of his mercy. And so he is teaching them, remember what God did with Moses and the Israelites and how he delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. It wasn't because they were worthy. It was because of his mercy. Look at how rebellious these Israelites were over and over again. I mean, we were talking about this just a little while ago. They weren't a couple of days past the gods pouring out of his wrath upon Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and them going through and and then God destroying the army of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. They weren't days past that when they're worshiping a golden calf. There was nothing worthy in them. Nothing good about them. But because of his promise, because of his love, and because of his mercy, he delivered them. And he speaks here in this passage that he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. Now I don't have but a few moments to discuss this. But I don't want any of you to think that somehow God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that means that God caused Pharaoh to sin. That is not what this text means. That's not what it meant in the passages that we looked at back in Exodus when it said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't mean that God caused Pharaoh to sin. You want to know what this talks about? Look back a few pages to chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And like I said, I only have a few moments. Romans chapter 1. This is more of what is being spoken of when the scripture speaks of God hardening his heart. Look down to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions and so on about what he talks. This is what it means for God to harden his heart. He's turning him over to his own sin. You know, the worst thing that God could ever do to a man. You know, the worst thing that God could ever do to a woman is to leave them alone. To withdraw any common grace. To withdraw any of His presence and to turn them over to their own sins and passions. And lusts and desires. And in that sense, their hearts become hardened to the things of God. Pharaoh was already a wicked sinner. Remember when Moses first came to him, we saw last Lord's Day, Moses comes to him and he says, you need to let my people go that they may serve you, that they may serve God. And Pharaoh said, who is God that I would worship him or obey him? Or let you go and worship him. Who is God? And you see over and over. In the dealings with Pharaoh. That he says. I don't believe God. I don't know God. I don't want God. Get out of here with your God. His heart was already wicked. His heart was already sinful. God simply gave him over. To his sin. That's hardening of the heart. Back to our text in chapter 9 now. And look what uh, God then says about Pharaoh here in this passage in verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Haven't I been saying that? In all of these instances, God's name was glorified and proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, Pharaoh, you were not raised up by God so that your might might be displayed. Pharaoh thought so. I mean, let's face it. God does raise up leaders and God does bring them down. Scripture teaches that. So Pharaoh was raised up by God. But it wasn't to show people how great Pharaoh was. It was to show people how great God is. Can you imagine? The great mighty army of the Egyptians. The great mighty empire of the Egyptians. Brought to their knees by slaves. Brought to their knees by sheep herders. Farmers and brick makers. And yet that's what happened. Could they have done it themselves? No way. But God did. And that shook the nations all around them. The whole earth saw the power and the might and the glory. Of God. This is what Paul is reminding them of. And as it was true with Moses, it was true for all the examples that we've cited. Hezekiah and the Assyrians, David and the Philistines, Gideon and the Midianites, Joshua and the people in Jericho, and even Noah in his salvation as the flood came upon the earth. All these are examples of God's deliverance. And now, Paul tells us clearly that it relates to us and it has to do with us as well. And I ask you here to skip down to verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but from among Gentiles. Let's take a few moments to open this up and see what God is saying about us and about God's wrath and about his glory. His deliverance brought him glory. Here Paul's point is, that God is glorified through this great deliverance of his people, even us, even his people, the church. We look in verse 23 and we see that he says, The redemption of his saints glorifies the Father. He did so in order that he might make known the riches. Of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Who's that? Who are vessels of mercy? We have here two different pictures, two different vessels vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And I'll tell you quite frankly and quite bluntly you are the vessels of mercy. The lost are the vessels of wrath. As God has mercy, had mercy upon the nation of Israel and delivered them from the wicked Egyptians, from the wicked Philistines, from the wicked Assyrians, and from all those other pagan God-hating countries, God delivers His people and does not deliver those who do not believe in Him. They are those who, who are vessels of dishonor. They are those who are vessels of wrath. But the, there is no question in this text that Paul is speaking about us as he speaks about us as vessels of mercy, verse 23, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Who? in this world, is going to go to glory. What is glory? We've seen that extensively in our study on heaven. And that heaven is glory, where God is. That even in that chapter of Luke 16, where where Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, it is a picture of the place of glory, where God is dwells you God's people are the ones who will be with him in glory you are vessels of mercy which were prepared beforehand for glory so he is taking the lessons learned from the deliverance of the nation of Israel and sort of juxtaposing with them what happens to us as God's people today. We are those upon which he lavishes his mercy, upon which he shows mercy to undeserving, unlovable, sinful men, his grace and his Mercy. I only have time at this point to say to you that there are too many people who look at this the wrong way. Too many people who say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. How can he do that? God knew people would say that. Look at what he says in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? You know, Paul anticipated that. God knew people might say that. What is the answer that Paul gives there? Who are you to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? God is God. Who are you to question what he does? His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We don't go to God and say, what are you doing? You have it all wrong. It isn't fair. They're looking at it the wrong way. You know what fair is? You know what fair is? Fair is everyone goes to hell. That's justice. Because all men are sinners and all fall short of the glory of God. All men deserve hell. You aren't fair. That's hell. So don't look at this and say, this is a bad thing. A bad thing would be no mercy. A bad thing would be everyone goes to hell. Look at this and say, oh, what a gracious God who showed mercy to me and saved me by His grace. Thank you, God. Thank you for having mercy upon me and saving me by your grace. And what great work did God do to deliver you? We saw the the great and mighty miracles that he did against Jericho, against Goliath, against the Assyrians, against the Egyptians. What great work did God do to deliver you from your sin? Look over to chapter 10. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, but but what if I'm not one upon whom he has mercy? That will never happen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this is the great work that he has done to deliver us he delivered up his son to the cross and he paid for our sin debt and we then believe in his finished work and have faith in his saving work of redemption and that is how we are then delivered from the wrath to come. But make no mistake, there is wrath upon the lost. That is what he is saying. That there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The lost will be consigned to hell. And in that God will be glorified. Now here's what I want you to keep in mind. If there was no justice of God, if there was no wrath of God upon the lost and upon the unrighteous and upon the unsaved, where would the good thing be about us being saved? If everybody is saved and everybody goes to heaven, where's the goodness in that? Where's the justice in that? Where's the beauty in that? But the fact that He has wrath upon the lost, shows that He is a just God. And His justice exalts and glorifies His glory in us as those who will go to glory. You see, His wrath magnifies His mercy and His grace to you. You ever go to a jewelry store in the mall or walk by a jewelry store in the mall and you look at some of these bright diamonds in these showcases? I've lived in New York and I've passed some very high-end jewelry stores in my life. Passed a few in Washington, D.C. a few years ago. And oftentimes, what you will find in these display Cases is black velvet upon which is placed the beautiful diamond. The black velvet is the background to display the beauty of the diamond in the case. In our redemption, the black background is the wrath of God that will be poured out upon the vessels of wrath, upon the unrighteous, upon the lost. And what it does is it points to and magnifies the beauty which is the diamond of salvation found in Christ for Him, for His people. This is What we have as God's people, we have His glory manifested in His wrath upon the unrighteous. Make no mistake, one day, one day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. One day, We will all stand before God in glory. And I tell you now that if you are genuinely saved in Christ, you will not be there lamenting Pharaoh, lamenting the Assyrians, lamenting the Philistines, lamenting the Midianites. You will be there glorifying God. You will not be there lamenting the lost, you will be there glorifying Christ. Because you're either going to be glorifying Him or you're going to be feeling His wrath, feeling His his justice and His judgment. And I don't want any of you to be there feeling His judgment. And I love you enough to tell you and warn you that His wrath is real. And to tell you that you can glorify God even in His wrath. I want to turn to one passage more as we close this morning. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Follow with me as I read from verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. Any of you deny that? Question that? It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. With his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution on those who did not know God. And to those who did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also, we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look not Upon those who are being judged, look upon your Savior and His mercy on you as He is glorified and you are glorified with Him. I want to remind you of the passage that I mentioned to you as we began our sermon a few weeks ago. From his book, The Attributes of God, on the chapter regarding the wrath of God, Pink lamented and said that it was sad that so many professing Christians appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make apologies. As though this part of God's attributes, His justice and His wrath, this part of God's work, is something that we should be ashamed of or shy away from or try to cover up. You know, we want people to come to our church and we want people to get saved. So we better not tell them about this wrath thing. Oh, too bad we have visitors today. They're going to hear our preacher preach on the wrath of God. They'll never come back. Because we were ashamed of this wrath thing. We don't want to deal with this wrath thing. It's it's not making people happy. It offends people. It upsets people. So we better just forget that it's in the Bible. Never preach on it. Never teach on it. And what? Let people go to hell. Because if they don't know what they need to be saved from, why would they bother to get saved or care about being saved? No, God's justice is one of His attributes. and God's wrath is part of that. And we are not ashamed of it because it is part of God's Word. It is what is clearly taught in the Old Testament and in the New. It is even, yes, part of Christianity and part of what our loving Savior Jesus taught. And the reason we're not ashamed of it and the reason that it's taught and what is shown is that it glorifies God. Now, why would you be ashamed of something that God says glorifies Him? I hope you're not. I hope you again embrace His mercy. Yes, we fear God. He is an awesome, powerful God, able to consign every one of us to an eternity in hell. But He is a merciful God. And I thank God that He has had mercy on so many of you in this place. And pray indeed with all of my heart that every one of you would know the grace and the mercy of God. That He would have mercy upon you and grace upon you. And that you, as the text said, would be glorified with Him as He is glorified even on the day of judgment. God help it to be so, we pray. Let's pray.